Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is August 16th, 2018, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I Want a New Drug, One That Doesn't Cause an Adverse Drug Event. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. Chris is an emergency physician and clinical lecturer at the University of Calgary. He is currently the host of CapeCast, which highlights educational innovations from emergency medicine residency programs across Canada. Chris also has his own FOMAD blog called Sock Mob, Standing on the Corner, Minding My Own Business. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks very much, Ken. Always good to be with you. Well, thanks for taking some time because it is the middle of the summer. Well, actually, it's getting closer to the end of the summer, and you're doing one of these SGEM hops with me. Yeah, just, uh, you know, getting out of the blaring hot sun and smokiness from all the fires here in Calgary, so it's not a bad thing right now. Well, stay safe, and let's get started with the case. So a 54-year-old female presents to the emergency department with abdominal pain and profuse non-bloody diarrhea for the past 24 hours. Her vital signs are within normal limits, and she's tolerating oral fluids. There have been no recent suspicious meals, water sources, She hasn't been camping or spelunking, and there are no sick contacts. She takes no regular medications. However, she did start amoxyl clavulinate, or clavulin, for a sinus infection three days ago. Chris, what's spelunking? Spelunking. My favorite thing to ask people if they're, you know, going on a little trip and they just might want to go in the caves a little bit, check things out, maybe find a little bat guano, you know, all that kind of thing. So that's what splunking is, going into the bat cave? Because I'm glad you added it to this show because, you know, I have an affinity for Batman. It might have not been an accident. (laughs) All right. Well, preventable adverse drug events or ADEs are common cause of ED visits, hospitalizations, and death. ADEs cause or contribute to one in nine ED visits and of deaths attributed to medical care. Medications are the most common cause. Yeah, unfortunately, 20 to 50% of ADEs are not recognized by emergency and inpatient unit physicians. When these aren't recognized and corrected, inappropriate medication use continues. This results in excess morbidity and healthcare resource utilization. Clinical pharmacists are trained to focus on medication management and are more likely to recognize medication-related ED presentations than physicians. However, clinical pharmacists are scarce resource and not available in many centers. Yeah, they're probably not available in the Exeter, Ontario community, I'm going to guess. It makes me think of my favorite EM pharmacist, Megan Groth. And unfortunately, we do not have an ED pharmacist. Yeah, it's, it's too bad, but when they're available, they're just phenomenal to have around. So in centers where pharmacists are available, routine medication review in all patients presenting to the ED is still not feasible. Evidence-based criteria to enhance the identification and treatment of adverse drug events are needed to ensure high-risk patients are evaluated by clinical pharmacists and to improve their outcomes. So what's the question today, Chris? The question is, can a clinical decision rule accurately identify patients presenting to the emergency department with adverse drug events? And the reference? Hole et al. Prospective validation of clinical criteria to identify emergency department patients at high risk for adverse drug events. Academic Emergency Medicine, August 2018. And it is 
hot off the press, and it's also hot here tonight. So let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Patients aged 19 years and older, clearly an Ontario study, presenting to the emergency department who reported using at least one prescription or over-the-counter medication in the two weeks prior. So why the 19 and older? Because that's our uh, legal drinking age? I feel like that has to be it. In Alberta, I'm sure this study would have been 18 and older. And then in the U.S., it would have been 21. Maybe we should have added that to our nerdy questions of the author, but let's go on. There was a number of exclusions for this study, and we will list them in the show notes. What was the intervention? Application of two different clinical decision rules to identify patients at risk for adverse drug events. You know, I've gotten through so far this show without actually wincing when you said clinical decision rules, because I've been just oh, wanting to say tools. Okay, what was the comparison? There's no comparison as this was a validation study of a CDR. Well, how about the outcome? A moderate or severe adverse drug event. This was defined as an untoward and unintended event arising from the appropriate or inappropriate use of a prescription or over-the-counter medication. Yeah, and they divided them into severe ADEs, which were death or required admission, or moderate ADEs, and that was a change in medical management. This is going to be the last show, Chris, for season number six, and we're doing it with a hot off the press from AEM, and that means we have, yes indeed, the lead author, Dr. Corinne Hole, on the show. Now, Corinne is an associate professor in UBC's Department of Emergency Medicine and a scientist at the Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Evaluation. She practices emergency medicine at Vancouver General Hospital, and her main research interests are in patient safety, health system innovations, and drug safety and effectiveness. Welcome to the SGEM, Corinne. Thank you. Corinne, you are in Kathmandu recording this right now. That must be a really interesting story behind how you ended up on the other side of the world. Um, well, we're basically on a family sabbatical. My whole family's here. The boys just started school a couple days ago. And I will be teaching at the Patent Academy of Health Sciences. They are trying to build up the specialty of emergency medicine here in Nepal and they graduated their first emergency medicine graduates just before the earthquake. So I am one of multiple physicians from UBC and U of A who are spending some time here in Nepal just really in a teaching capacity. But perhaps the more interesting thing about that is that we actually came by railway. So we actually took the Trans-Siberian Railway from St. Petersburg all the way to Beijing, and we just actually arrived a few days ago. That is amazing story. I mean, what you're doing, uh, it just, oh, it has so many things in there about, you know, the idea of FOMED and free open access and the internet and being able to connect halfway around the world. I mean, I'm recording this at my time. It's now 1030 at night. What time is it over there in Kathmandu? For me, it's 820 a.m. Oh, and the kids are off to school? They just left the house. And Chris, you're, you're at about 830 then, uh, Calgary time? 8.30 over here in the mountains. See, this is just amazing how we can pull this together with a hot off the press from academic emergency medicine and spread the foamy goodness around the world. I think this is amazing. Well, Corinne, uh, thanks for doing this. We need you to explain these two tools that you used to study ADEs. Do, so do you think you could run through your rule number one and rule number two that you used in the study? Sure, I'll, I'll certainly try. And maybe I'll focus on rule one because all of the care providers that we did this work with 
very much favored rule one, and rule one is also the rule that we would recommend if you're thinking about implementing one of these rules. So one of the first things that care providers told us when we did some qualitative work around this is they don't really like having to think about inclusion and exclusion criteria. So they asked us to put the most important exclusion criteria into the rule. And so that's why the first question of the rule is, have you taken medications in the past two weeks? And if a patient presents to the emergency department not on any medications for two weeks, the likelihood of an adverse drug event is exceedingly low, so that patient can safely be classified as low risk. The next relevant question is, if you are on medications, do you have any pre-existing medical problems, or have you recently been started on antibiotics? And the interesting thing about that is, with that question, we're really excluding young healthy people, like young women who are on the birth control pill, or men who might be taking something for hair loss, or the shift worker who takes the occasional Zopiclone to be able to sleep better. So we're not really looking for healthy people who occasionally use medications. And the other piece of that is somehow people who have recently been started on antibiotics seem to be at higher risk of adverse drug events. So if you meet either of those criteria, you move on to the next screening question, which is, are you greater than 80 years old? Um, as I think is quite intuitive, adverse drug events are much more common in the elderly. Or have you had a recent medication change in the past 28 days? And that really um, identifies patients who are struggling with their medications generally. For example, the warfarin dose is going up and down, the RNRs have been out of whack, and we need to make sure that they really are within therapeutic range. People who have been struggling with their sugar controls, or people who have been newly started on medications, because when you newly start a medication is usually when you start experiencing adverse drug events. Rule two is quite a bit more complex, and you only add a little bit of sensitivity, but you lose specificity, which is why we wouldn't recommend it for implementation. The first two components of the rule are the same as the first rule, but the third component asks a whole bunch of criteria that helps identify a little bit more patients with adverse drug events. There's variables that get at patient acuity or the acuity of presentation by ambulance arrival and CTAS score. Um, again, medication changes was important in there. A recent admission to hospital, which is always associated with medication changes. A history of renal failure, which puts people at risk for adverse drug events. And then simply taking a lot of medications also puts people at risk for adverse drug events. Well, now that we know the tools, I'll put them in the show notes so, so people can review them. But what we'd like you to do is, can you read your conclusions from the paper? So we validated clinical decision rules that can be applied by pharmacists to limit the number of patients that require a full medication review, while allowing them to still identify the majority of patients who present to the ED with a clinically significant adverse drug event. Great. All right, Chris, let's run through the quality checklist for clinical decision tools. The first question is the study population. Did it include or focus on those in the emergency department? Yes, it did. Were the patients representative of those with the problem? They were. Were all important predictor variables and outcomes explicitly specified? Yes. Now, is this a prospective multi-center, including a broad spectrum of patients and clinicians, or a level two study? Yes. And did the clinicians interpret individual predictor variables and score the clinical decision rule reliably and accurately? Yes, they did. Was this an impact analysis? 
No, it wasn't. So we'll skip over number seven then. And the follow-up, was it complete and long enough? Unsure. They discussed telephone follow-up calls, but unsure how far out these went. And the final question, the effect size, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Unsure about that as well. All right, let's go through the key results. They had just over 1,500 patients enrolled in the study with an average age of 59 years, and 56% were female. The median number of prescribed medications was my favorite number, five, and that goes along with a theory I have that, you know, the number of medications should not exceed the age in decades. And there were 184 patients, which is 12%, diagnosed with 202 moderate or severe ADEs. There were no fatalities observed in this study attributed to ADEs. Chris, what was the main outcome? So both rules or tools identified more than 90% of adverse drug events. So for that primary outcome, identifying moderate or severe adverse drug events, variables strongly associated with ADEs included age, use of opioids, antihypertensives and antibiotics, recent medication changes, and number of prescription medications. And we'll put a table in the show notes showing the sensitivity and specificity. But Chris, what was the sensitivity and specificity of rule number one? Rule number one had a sensitivity of just over 91% and a specificity of 38%. And how about rule number two? Rule number two had a sensitivity of 95.7% and a specificity of about 23%. And in that table, we'll include the positive and negative likelihood ratios. Now for some secondary outcomes. Yeah, looking at the secondary outcomes, clinical pharmacists and treating physicians' outcome assessment was concordant in 90% of the cases. In cases that were ultimately attributed to ADEs, emergency physicians did not attribute the presentation to a drug 35% of the time. Yeah, emergency physicians were uncertain about whether an ADE had occurred in an, in an additional 16%. All right, well, those cover the, the big results here. Let's, let's talk nerdy with Corinne. And we, we have five questions each, so that makes 10. We have five questions each to understand your research even better. And I'm going to lead this one off, Corinne, about selection bias. And these were not consecutive patients because it would apparently have impacted negatively on patient flow through the emergency department. You use some form of algorithm to select patients but that had not been validated. Can you explain the process and tell us about some of the unpublished data that you have to support this method of patient selection? Sure, I'd be happy to. So in our emergency department, as I'm sure in many of yours, um, on some days, you know, we might have over 20 patients presenting per hour for several hours in a row. And so you can imagine that um, with a study that has relatively broad inclusion and exclusion criteria, we might have 14 patients in one hour that are eligible for inclusion for the study, and we don't have more than one clinical pharmacist who's working on this study at a time. And we know that medication review to identify the ADE takes about 40 minutes per patient. So you could imagine that if we had enrolled consecutive eligible patients, we would have ended up with a huge amount of selection bias because by the time the pharmacist would have gotten through the first three patients, you know, the healthier of all of the subsequent patients would have already left the emergency department. So if we had enrolled consecutive eligible patients, it would have hugely biased our patient population towards the sicker and older patients. 
So what we decided to do was allow the clinical pharmacist to randomly select the first eligible patient from among all patients who presented within 60 minutes of the start of their data collection shift. So what they did practically is they counted the number of patients, and I'll use 20, and they put 20 in a random number generator, just an online random number generator. And say the computer spat out the number 8, they went to see the 8th patient who presented in the past 60 minutes. And then after they completed medication review, because we needed to have as complete outcome data as possible on enrolled patients, we then asked the pharmacist to sort the census and enroll the next eligible patient 40 minutes after presentation of the first. So it was literally by triage time that they would then add 40 minutes to the triage time of the first patient and then look for the next eligible patient after that. So the pharmacist was not allowed to pick and choose who they saw and this is what we would call a, a systematic selection algorithm. And the reason why we think it worked is because when we compared the patient, a few of the key patient characteristics to the administrative data of the entire patient population, it was quite well matched. Well, thank you for explaining that because when I was going through that, that's one of the red flags we always look for is that you have consecutive patients. Now, while I may lament or wish that I could have an EM pharmacist, wouldn't it be great if you had 20 EM pharmacists to handle 20 patients an hour coming in and registering and going through those uh, charts with you? But it makes total sense. So I appreciate you explaining that. All right, Karen, I have the, the next question for you. And as somebody who has been working night shifts for the last five years, this one is always, always comes up for me with every study. So another issue is you didn't include night shifts because it was deemed inefficient and costly. Do you think this could have introduced some selection bias? So it could have introduced some selection bias in terms of, you know, changing the performance characteristics slightly. But I'll bring you to the derivation study. And in derivation study, we actually enrolled at nighttime. And that's where we learned that nighttime enrollment was incredibly costly and inefficient. So we did not actually modify the rule between the derivation and the validation study. So I think you can rest assured that this rule still reflects nighttime patients because nighttime patients were enrolled in derivation. Um, now, to the degree of which that not enrolling nighttime patients during validation would change performance characteristics, I don't know. But... You know, one of the things I say, and this is by no means a way of discouraging you or, or you know, being defensive, is that most centers only have pharmacists during the evening and daytime. And so these rules actually reflect the current availability of clinical pharmacists. So they are, I think, a reflection of what is currently going on. I would have loved to enroll nighttime patients. It simply was just we did not have the funding for it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think we have a pharmacist from 8 a.m. till midnight every day. And so this study does reflect the real world. Oh, the real world? Try doing it without an EM pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. It doesn't reflect the real world. All the people who are rural listeners, I apologize <laughs> for that statement. I love rural medicine too. I just like... Uh, the real academic emergency <laughs> department worker. Let's say that. All right, sure. Question number three, Corinne, is about incentives. You used incentives to motivate the nurses to complete the forms. So this really piqued my curiosity. Now, as a Canadian, I wanted to know, for prizes, did you use Tim Horton's gift cards? So, so we used gift cards from wherever the nurses wanted the gift cards from. What we did is we allowed the nurse to enter the draw 
for every data collection form they filled in. And then we drew from the hat every month. And, you know, that was just a means of, you know, pleading with the nurses to ask them to please, please, please collect, you know, fill in the data collection forms. Well, that was very nurse oriented. Were some nurses more likely to complete forms than others? Because that could have introduced some selection bias if that prize didn't motivate everyone equally. Yes, that certainly did happen. All right. And well, did the nurses know the purpose of the study or were they blinded to it? Because that could have introduced some selection bias. So in clinical decision rule derivation and validation study, it's not so important to blind them to the purpose of the study, but it's really important to blind them to the outcomes assessment. And they were blinded to the outcomes assessment because the outcomes assessment didn't happen until those data collections forms had been collected and were complete. Um, It's really hard to ask busy clinical care providers to fill in a random data collection form without actually explaining why you need it. And so I think it would have been a tall order to not actually explain why we were doing this study. And Corinne, once the incentives go away, it is likely that the completion of forms will go down. Do you have a way to ensure that these forms continue to be filled out to flag pharmacists for the patients that need to be reviewed? So um, two issues here. Um, You may remember from the study that we actually don't recommend this clinical decision rule to be implemented by nurses because we found that the nurse-collected variables were, were not as accurate as other variables. And so the ultimate vision, knowing that the variables themselves work, is to actually integrate this algorithm as a screening tool into the EMR that we're going to be implementing in the next few years. So what we've done in the interim is we have um, this decision rule is available on our triage forms, but it's usually actually not currently being filled in by the triage nurses. And we recommend that this can be used by the pharmacist to rapidly screen patients and then focus their full attention on those patients who screen positive according to the pharmacist assessments, simply because the pharmacist variables are much more reliable. Well, you're skipping ahead to another nerdy question about EMRs, but we'll leave it there and I'll let Chris go on. All right, so the next question is about delirium. So one of the presenting complaints likely to be most associated with adverse drug events is delirium in the elderly. Why not make this and other potential high-yield complaints like falls a focus for the pharmacists? That is an excellent question. Um, We found in our work that whenever we start using patient presentations or drugs or drug classes, it really, those individual presentations and drugs, they're non-sensitive and they're actually very non-specific. So they actually don't help in deriving a parsimonious rule. If you have 200 adverse drug events, they're probably going to be caused by over 100 medications and have about 60 different presentations. And delirium would only pick up one of those 60 presentations, just like warfarin would only pick up one of those over 100 drugs. And so the minute you start using specific presentations or drugs, you need to have a very, very lengthy clinical decision rule. And so using those types of variables are not efficient for this purpose. All right. That's that's very interesting. I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, and you've got to keep those clinical decision instruments to a very low number. You can't have 20 or 30 variables. It's got to be something like three, four, five, something that I can count to on one hand. But I think that Chris Carpenter, the geriatric EM guru, is going to like the fact that you asked that question, Chris. 
All right, question number five. This is about non-English speaking patients and those without a translator were excluded from the study due to ED flow reasons. This seems like a group that could be at very high risk for ADEs in the first place. For non-English speaking patients who did have a translator, so they would be included in this study, what was the incidence of ADEs and how did it compare to the English speaking population? And is there any previous literature in this area? You know, those are great questions, and I don't have the answer to those. Um, because we excluded non-English speaking patients without a translator, we don't know how many had ADEs. And to be honest with you, this study was grossly underfunded. So we had to pull in from other grants, and that's why, you know, we just did not have the funding for the pharmacist to call in a translator, to pay the translator, and to spend all that extra time to enroll these kinds of patients. I think your points are excellent, and I, I don't know of the answer to your questions because I don't think the research is out there to answer them. Well, that just means we're stimulating more research. I love it. The next question is about preventability. Using this rule, we can better identify adverse drug events. How many of these would be preventable, though? For example, if you don't know someone has a sulfa allergy or someone develops S. Stevens-Johnson's because of it, isn't that just bad luck? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So we now have data on over 10,000 patients that have been collected in over, I think it's now five centers. And interestingly enough, about 60 to 70% of patients who present with adverse drug events are presenting with preventable events. So when we look at preventability, we look at different factors. Interestingly enough, it's usually not um, drug administration errors or errors in who gets what drug that causes the preventable adverse drug events. One of the issues that we're really chasing right now and developing solutions for is that people are coming in with the same adverse drug event over and over again. And what we believe is happening is that because of chronic disease management guidelines, so for example, in the elderly, a lot of our elderly on hydrochlorothiazide, um, they tend to have episodes of hyponatremia, which lead to delirium and confusion and require admission to hospital and withdrawal of the drug. But because we don't record adverse drug events in a central location that's accessible to all care providers, when they then go see their internist or their cardiologist or they switch GPs, there's often no record of the previous adverse drug event because the adverse drug events that are serious are often diagnosed in hospital. And so it's likely for patients to be restarted on the same culprit drug as caused a previous adverse drug event. And that is one of the largest categories of preventable events that we're finding. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I can think of numerous cases of repeated hyponatremia in the same patient, just like as soon as you mention it. The seventh question is about nursing identification, and, and you alluded to this earlier. There was a significant number of misclassifications made by the nursing staff. We don't have a pharmacist at all times of the day, so how can we improve the identification at triage or earlier in the ED visit? And you mentioned this earlier in, in, your, in your answer, so can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. And I, I think the most important thing I want to say is I love my nursing colleagues and they do a fabulous job and they work very hard. I think in this context of this study, it was just really difficult for them, given the time constraints of data collection and that, you know, pushed into their daily work to really, you know, respond to all of these variables with as much diligence as perhaps is required. 
So given that we had a, a high number of misclassification of these variables by nurses, we pretty much said we're not going to recommend implementation by nursing staff. And we had a priori said that if these variables are misclassified too commonly, a lot of these variables can likely be actually derived from administrative data. So in Ontario, this can be done in everybody of the age over 65. In, in BC, we have Pharmanet records, which is basically a record of the dispensed medications. So a lot of these variables, for example, age, they're actually they're known to the EMR, and we can develop an algorithm where all of these variables can actually be predicted by an EMR using administrative records. So what we recommend is for an algorithm like that to be integrated into the EMR. In the interim, what we have done is validated these variables for use by pharmacists. And so what pharmacists can do when there's a pharmacist on duty is they can use this as a really rapid screening tool when they go see a patient. And it'll take them, you know, 30 seconds to run through that with a patient before they decide whether or not they want to complete a full medication review or whether they want to spend a bit more time on the next patient. So that's how we would recommend these rules be used for now. You keep segueing into my next question about things like EMRs, but I'll let Chris go with number eight first, and then I'll get to my EMR question. Yeah, I feel like number eight you've kind of addressed as well. So the question is rule one versus rule two. Rule one had a slightly lower sensitivity, 91% versus 96%, but was more specific, 38% versus 23%. But rule one also seems much easier to use. Which would you recommend for other emergency departments and why? So definitely rule one, because it's much quicker and these are intended as a rapid screening tool. And, you know, the added four percentage points of sensitivity, I don't really think that that's a big deal. We're not missing fatal adverse drug events. We're missing severe and moderates. So um, I would highly recommend rule one over rule two just for the complexity. All right, now to my question number nine, electronic medical records. First of all, Corinne, let me say, I am glad you did not refer to the EMRs as electronic health records or EHRs, because it was described by ZDOG MD that there is nothing healthy about putting a computer between a physician and a patient. And I'll put a couple of links to some YouTube videos that really expand on that. So how do you think this EMR, what kind of algorithm do you see being generated to improve the identification of patients at risk for ADEs? You know, I really don't want frontline care providers who should be in front of the patient spending time asking the patient questions that the computer already knows. So for example, the EMR knows the patient's age. There's no added value to patient care of a care provider asking the patient what their age is when they're applying a clinical decision rule. It's a variable that can be automated. And so really when you develop this algorithm in your EMR, the clinical care provider should only be asked, if any, to answer questions that cannot be pre-populated by your EMR. I think that is the value of developing an algorithm and putting it in an EMR. And hopefully with that, the impact of implementing the, the clinical decision rule and the screening time can be minimized. Yeah, so the final question is the impact analysis. So this was not an impact analysis of these two tools. However, you did do an impact analysis previously, which seems a little bit like putting the cart before the horse. So can you tell us a bit about that? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, we did the derivation fund uh, study way back when, and I think this actually is connected to the financial crisis and the, the collapse of research funding for several years in our country. So we had had the derived clinical decision rules for some time, and I think I probably must have written about eight grant applications trying to seek funding for validation, and I just could not get funding for it. And so finally what happened is through a quality improvement initiative um, that was funded by our Ministry of Health and our health authority, they came up to us and said, hey, we know you have these tools and we need an intervention to try and reduce health services utilization by seniors. And so they offered to pay for implementation, but were very specific that they would not fund validation. They didn't see the value of that. And so we kind of scratched our heads and went, yeah, you know, how comfortable are we with doing that? But we also had to realize that perhaps we would never be able to attract any funding to validate these clinical decision rules. So we went ahead and we planned an implementation study. And the, the interesting thing about that is the funder specified that it had to be a quality improvement study. For example, we were not allowed to randomize patients to the intervention or control arm. So there are limitations to that study. And basically, we did the best we could given the constraints of the funding we had. So what we did is it's also a multi-center, a large multi-center prospective com comparator study. And what we did is we systematically, we again, we randomly selected the first patient, and then we systematically allocated patients after that to either the control or the intervention group. And what we found is we actually had very good, um, the baseline characteristics were very well matched. If anything, the intervention group who basically were high-risk patients and received medication review, they were a little bit older and a little bit more complex and more likely to present by ambulance. Those patients ended up having approximately half a day hospital stay less than the comparator group. And the comparator, the control group, they didn't receive. Those were also high-risk patients who did not receive medication review in the emergency department. I just have to shake my head, you know, like you want to validate the tool first before implementing it and seeing what impact it has. And yet you have to follow the money and the government comes in or the funding comes in and they want to actually just, all right, let's see if the tool works before they actually validate whether the tool works. It just, I shake my head, Corinne. I, 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 it's so hard, isn't it, research? Well, I think what's really hard is that there's a disconnect between the research methodology and as a researcher what you know and would like to do and the constraints of the funding availability um, and that's really a reality of research unfortunately. Well we'll put a link in the show notes to that study it was published in 2017 I believe in PLOS correct? That's correct. All right well is there anything else you'd like to tell the SGEMers about your research on adverse drug events? Well, perhaps just that, you know, as I've been doing this work, I think the most important realization for me and for my practice is that even though I was never really taught about adverse drug events in my residency training, it's a really important part of emergency medicine. And I'd actually argue that when you're looking after either younger patients with chronic medical problems or in the seniors coming to our emergency departments, it's really our bread and butter. And so if you can find a way to bring some of this information to your hospital administrators and get them to, to help you out by funding clinical pharmacist resources, those can be a real asset to our practice.
All right, Chris, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. Pretty straightforward. We agree with the author's conclusion. Then can you give us a bottom line? Yeah, the use of a clinical decision rule or tool by clinical pharmacists and emergency physicians can help to identify patients at risk for adverse drug events in the ED. How are you going to resolve the case of the person who presented to the emergency department? So based on her recent initiation of antibiotics, you suspect this diarrhea may be due to an adverse drug event. You send stool cultures for C. difficile and tell the patient to stop the clavulin as it is not needed for sinusitis anyway. The next day, her stool assay is positive for C. diff, and you call the patient to start her on appropriate therapy. All right, and I'll do the clinical application. Clinical pharmacists can be a great resource to the emergency department, and these two tools look promising, especially that rule number one, to micro-allocate this important scarce medical resource to those patients at high risk for ADEs. It would be great, though, to have another impact analysis of these tools before implementing them widely to ensure that they have a net patient-oriented benefit. Chris, what are you going to tell the patient? I'm going to tell the patient that you've experienced an adverse drug reaction from the antibiotic used to treat your sinus infection. Antibiotics can disrupt the normal bacteria in your gut, and this can sometimes result in the development of an infection called C. difficile. We will stop your other antibiotic and need, to, and need to treat this infection with a different drug as it can become very serious if left untreated. All right, for the Keener contest, there was no winner on the last SGEM episode. Perhaps it was a little too nerdy of a question. The question was, in the movie Star Trek Generations, Captain Kirk is trapped in the Nexus. He escapes with Captain Picard to save the Enterprise, but is killed in the process. And we wanted to know what his final words were. And they were, and I'll have to read them, like Captain Kirk. It was fun. Oh my. Chris, what's the question this week? <laughs> this week's question is adverse drug reactions are the fourth leading cause of death in Canada. How many Canadians are estimated to die each year due to adverse drug events? If you know the answer to this question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical Now prize. it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on adverse drug events? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Corinne and her team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Also, don't forget, for those of you who subscribe to Academic Emergency Medicine, can head over to the AEM homepage and get CME credits for this podcast and article. We'll put the process in the show notes. Thank you, Corinne, for coming on the SGEM and talking about adverse drug events. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Chris, for coming on the SGEM hop and doing another episode with me during the summer. Thanks very much for having me, Ken. And Corinne, I've got a special request. Can you give the SGEM tagline from Kathmandu in your best Swiss German? I'll certainly try. Erinnert euch daran, dass ihr immer skeptisch bleibt über alles das, was ihr lernt, selbst wenn ihr das auf Skeptics Guide to Emergency Medicine gehört habt. Talk to everyone next episode.